Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Maps can be very useful when you're traveling in an unfamiliar territory. I found that out the hard way some years ago. A friend of mine had invited me to come preach at his church in Canada, and since I had been there before, I was happy to accept uh, the invitation. So one Friday morning, I uh, left DFW and went to Minneapolis, changed planes, and went on to Winnipeg, Manitoba. The service was going to be that uh, Friday night. And I got there in time at about 4 o'clock p.m. to have a leisurely supper, I thought, and then preach. But I got my bags at the airport, went outside to wait for the pastor, and I waited and waited and waited. He never showed up. So I thought, obviously, something's wrong. I need to call him. So I retrieved his invitation letter, looking for his phone number. And as I did, I noticed that the return address is not where I was. Um, He had been in Winnipeg, Manitoba, the last time I was there, I just assumed that's where he was, but that wasn't the return address, and uh, so I went to the airport counter, and I said, you know, I made a mistake. I came to the wrong place. I see here it's Vancouver, British Columbia, and is there a bus I can take to get there in 30 minutes? They laughed, and they said, obviously, you don't know Canada. You're 1,500 miles away. But you've got luck. There is a plane we've got leaving right now for Vancouver, and if you run fast enough, you can catch the plane. And so I ran like O.J. Simpson, reminding the Remember him? Ran down, got to the gate. The ticket agent took my ticket, and apparently word had traveled down to the gate. He handed me a map of Canada. (laughs) He said, read this. It might help you the next time you come to Canada. (laughs) Maps really can be helpful when you're in a foreign territory. And the subject of the end times is foreign territory to most people. For most people, it's a confusing topic. They can't make heads or tails of it. Well, we're going to try to solve that problem today. Because as we consider our series, Are We Living in the End Times? I thought it would be helpful today to talk about the major events that will categorize the end times. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11. We've seen so far in our study that We are not technically living in the period of time the Bible calls the end times. Instead, we're living in the period that precedes the end times called the last days. We've actually been in the last days for 2,000 years, ever since Christ ascended into heaven. But the end times do not begin until the event we're going to talk about in just a few moments. 
Nevertheless, it'd be helpful for us to get an overview of where we are in our study of the last days and the end times. You see there that, first of all, I marked for your consideration the church age. That's the age we are clearly in right now. Now, here's the definition of the church age. The church age is that period of time from Pentecost until the rapture during which Gentiles are invited to participate in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, that's a mouthful. So, let me illustrate it simply for you. Just imagine you're a parent, and you'd like to have a lavish birthday party for your 10-year-old son. So, you send out the invitations to your closest friends and relatives and neighbors. You rent a bounce house. You order ice cream desserts. You have a clown there perhaps to help. It's going to be a big bash. But the day before the party, you start getting all of these RSVPs with people declining. They've got every excuse in the world for not coming, and you realize your son's going to be disappointed. So what do you do? Do you cancel the party? Of course not. Instead, you extend the invitation list. You start asking relatives you haven't seen in 10 years, neighbors you've never met, other people you can't stand just to get a crowd at your son's birthday party so he's not disappointed. Now, that's exactly an illustration of the church age, or as the Bible calls it, the time of the Gentiles. Jesus used a similar illustration in Matthew chapter 22. He said the kingdom of God can be compared to a king who wanted to throw a banquet for his son. The invitations went out, but people excused themselves why they couldn't come. And so the king, not wanting to disappoint his son, told his servants to go out into the highways and the byways and compel people to come to the party. It was an illustration of what God was doing with the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, we saw that God made an offer to the descendants of Abraham, of a land, a nation, and a blessing. But to receive that blessing, they had to accept that blessing. They had to believe. And instead of accepting Messiah, they rejected Messiah. So did God cancel the kingdom, the party? No, not at all. He extended the invitation list instead. He invited Gentiles, people like you and me, people not physically related to Abraham, to share in the party, the kingdom of God. Now, has Israel rejected God forever? Not at all. It is only a temporary rejection. And that's what Romans 11.1 1 says. Paul said, has God not, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Then skip down to verse 25. So I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. Mystery? Is he talking about Agatha? Christie? what does he mean here? Mystery. Here it is. The mystery is that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul was given this mystery to reveal. He's the one who understood it, that Israel would temporarily reject Christ and Gentiles would benefit from that rejection because they would be invited to the party, the kingdom of God. God's not through with Israel yet, but there's a temporary hardening that has come to their hearts. And it's during that time that we're living right now, the time of the Gentiles. 
when the time of the Gentiles, the church age is over, when the last Gentile who has been chosen has been saved, then God will turn his attention back toward Israel for one final period of seven years that we will look at in just a moment. Now, that is the church age. The next event that we're awaiting, the next event is the rapture of the church. Now, people object to the idea of the rapture. They say things like, it's just you dispensationalists have made this rapture idea up in the last hundred years. It's nowhere in the Bible. The Old Testament prophets never spoke of it. True. Uh, Jesus never spoke of it. Maybe. One time, John 14, possibly. But it's true, Jesus didn't teach extensively. It's true in Matthew 24, 25, when uh, the disciples said, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus said not one word about the rapture. It started with the tribulation, which is very clear when you understand why. The rapture is not for the Jewish people, not the nation as a whole. It is for the church age. It is a mystery that the prophets never talked about, Jesus rarely talked about. It was Paul who was explaining the church age, who was chosen to explain the end of the church age, which was the rapture of the church. What is the rapture? Here's the definition. The rapture of the church is the snatching away to heaven of all Christians from the time of Pentecost until the tribulation. Now, people say, well, the word rapture is never found in the Bible. Wrong and wrong again. Let me show you where it's in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. Paul is writing to a group of Christians who were concerned that the Lord did not come back yet, had not come back. They were concerned about their loved ones who had died. Are they going to miss out on the coming of the Lord? Not at all. He talks about the rapture beginning in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. There it is, arpazo in Greek, raptured, snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. The rapture is not about his coming to earth. It's our going up to meet him in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. Now, will you notice the four components of the rapture, the four things that are going to happen? Number one, Christ will descend from heaven. The Lord himself will descend. Again, he's descending into the clouds, not to the earth. Unlike the second coming, Zechariah 14.4, he comes to earth. But at the rapture, he comes into the clouds. Now, in verse 15, Paul is describing this event, and he refers to it as the coming, parousia in Greek, the coming of the Lord. The rapture will involve the coming of the Lord. Now, interestingly, that same word, parousia, is used in Matthew 24, 27 to describe the second coming of Jesus seven years later. Parousia, the coming of the Lord. We read that passage just a few moments ago. Now, some people will say, well, there's the proof. It's the same thing. The rapture and the second coming are the same thing. No, just because things are similar doesn't mean they're the same. And I'm going to do something I've never done before. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach an entire message on the difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Both events impact us 
for very different reasons. And I'm going to talk about why next time. But here we see the Lord is descending from heaven. Secondly, the Bible says the dead in Christ will be resurrected. That's the second component of the rapture, the dead in Christ. Who are the dead in Christ? Listen, when a Christian dies, he immediately goes into the presence of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But his body doesn't go to heaven. That's why we have cemeteries. You can go to a cemetery and you'll find the bodies, the decomposed bodies are there. Now, people ask, well, what if you got cremated? Big deal. That doesn't bother God at all if you get cremated. cremated cremation only speeds up the inevitable your body's going to turn to dust without any help from anybody. It just is going to become dust one day. Cremation just speeds up the process. <laughs> but the point is, you lead your, leave your body or the remains of your body behind. It is your spirit that goes into the presence of the Lord the moment you die or at the rapture of the church. However, however, the bodies that we leave behind one day they're going to be raised, and they're going to be changed, as we'll see in just a moment. It is not the spirit of the dead in, in Christ who are raised. It is their bodies. The bodies of the dead in Christ will be resurrected first. And then thirdly, all living Christians will be removed from the earth. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Somebody said they get to go first because they have six feet further to travel. I don't know if that's true or not. I just heard somebody say that. But their bodies are removed first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be, and there's that word, verse 17, caught up our potsoed to meet the Lord in the air. The fourth component of the rapture is that our bodies will be transformed. Whether our bodies are being raised from the grave or the crematorium, or whether it is those of us who are alive and we're raised to heaven, on our way up, we're going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Why is that? Because our bodies, whether dead or alive, are not suitable for the next world that God has planned for us. And aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you glad you're not going to have, have to lug that body of yours right now around for all eternity? You're going to get a brand new body. And that's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. He says, now I say to this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Your body is suited for this world and is totally unsuitable for the next world. In verse 51, he says, therefore, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, not every Christian is going to die. There'll be a group who are alive during the rapture that will be like Elijah and Enoch. They will not experience physical death. So he says, we're not all going to sleep. That's a euphemism. The Bible never speaks of the soul as going to sleep. Our spirit is alive always. It is our bodies that are temporarily put to sleep. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We're all not going to die, but we all do have to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. As we're going up with the dead bodies of those who've gone on before us, 
in a twinkling of an eye, we're going to be instantaneously changed into that new body God has planned for us. And by the way, it says in the twinkling of an eye, not in the blinking of an eye. A blink is pretty quick, but the twinkling of an eye is much quicker. It represents the amount of time it takes for light that has entered your eye through the lens to make it to the retina. That is the twinkling of an eye. It's how quick our change is going to be. That's the rapture of the church. And the one word that describes the rapture best is imminent. That means it could happen at any moment. There are no prophecies that have to be fulfilled for the rapture to occur. Now, there are several prophecies related to the second coming seven years later, like the rebuilding of the temple, the regathering of the people in Israel, some of which we've seen take place, some of which are yet to take place. But there are no prophecies that are left unfulfilled for the rapture. It could happen before we finish the message today. Now, there's an event on your outline or that doesn't um, appear. I don't think it appears on your outline, but it's one that is important just to mark down at the end of the rapture, I believe that is when we experience the judgment seat of Christ that 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, the Bema seat, as it's called. It's not for non-Christians. It is a judgment of rewards for Christians. And I think that occurs, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10, after the rapture. Now, what happens after that? What happens after the rapture? The church age, the time of the Gentiles is over. God is now ready to finish his dealings with Israel during a period of time we call the tribulation. Here's the definition for you to write down of the tribulation. It is the seven-year period of time that begins when the Antichrist signs a peace covenant with Israel and ends with Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. Now, will you stay with me for five minutes? I'm not saying that's how long the sermon has, but the next five minutes, we're gonna get into some deep stuff real quickly from Daniel 9, but it's key to understanding this period of time called the tribulation. You may remember this from our study of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Daniel prophesied 600 years before Christ. So we're talking about something that happened more than 2,600 years ago. The children of Israel were captive in Babylon. Daniel lamented the Israelites' slavery and cried out before God, God, when are you going to put an end to this? When is this deportation to Babylon going to be over? Give me some hope. And so God gave Daniel more than he bargained for. He sent Gabriel, Gabriel, the angel, to reveal the total panorama of God's remaining dealings with Israel. And remember, Gabriel said, Daniel, God has decreed 70 weeks. And he was talking about weeks of years. It's strange to us, but that's how they sometimes talk. A week of years, 70 weeks of years. Now, if one week is seven years, 70 weeks, 70 times seven would be 490 years. Gabriel said, God has 490 years left to finish his dealings for Israel and to usher in the long-awaited kingdom of God. Now, he went on to tell Daniel that those 490 years would be separated into two parts. The first 483 years, 69 weeks of years, and then the final week of years, the final seven years, there'd be a gap between the two. How would Daniel know? 
when the stopwatch started, the countdown of those 490 years, well, Gabriel was very specific. He said, from the time that the decree is issued for Israel to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be 483 years. Now, when did that decree go out to rebuild Jerusalem? Many people erroneously say, oh, that was when Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, issued the decree. No, that was in 536 B.C., it doesn't work out if you'd start with Cyrus. Cyrus didn't issue the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. He issued the decree to rebuild the temple. It was Artaxerxes Longamanus. We actually know the date in history, March 14th, 445 BC, that he issued the decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And Gabriel prophesied from that moment until Messiah the Prince, as referring to Jesus. When was Jesus recognized temporarily, very temporarily, as Messiah? It was when he was on that donkey and was entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Did you know we know that date as well? April the 2nd, 32 AD. My old seminary professor, Harold Honer, did a chronology where he shows exactly how to the day that was the fulfillment of the vision given to Daniel by Gabriel. The time from the decree going out until the time Messiah arrived in Jerusalem was 483 years, but then God stopped the stopwatch. There are seven years yet remaining on it, and there were many things that would happen in that gap. Messiah would be crucified, cut off. Uh, thousands of years of the church age would elapse. All those things would happen. God still has seven years to finish his work with Israel. And that's what the tribulation is all about. The tribulation is that final seven years of God fulfilling his promise to Israel. What is the purpose of the tribulation? Twofold. Number one, the salvation of Israel. Uh, many Israelites will become Christians during the tribulation through the witness of 144,000 Jewish evangelists, as will many Gentiles as well. They'll suffer great persecution to become a Christian, but they will do so. But the second purpose of the tribulation between, beyond salvation is the condemnation of unbelievers when God pours out his judgment on the world. Now, the climax of the tribulation will be the fourth event, Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. Here's the definition. The war of Armageddon is the final world war that will be fought in Israel and would result in the visible return of Jesus Christ on earth. The world forces will be assembled on the plain of Megiddo. They will be waging war against the dictator when suddenly the skies will open, the trumpet will sound, the Lord Jesus along with his army, the church will return triumphant. And that will be the end of the great tribulation. We'll talk in depth about the second coming of Christ and why it's important next week. And then that leads to the millennium. Remember, the tribulation is filled with pain, the birth pangs that will increase in frequency and intensity. But that pain produces something good. And in this case, that good is the millennium the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Christ will fulfill all of the promises that God made to Abraham and to believing Israel. Here's the definition. The millennium is the thousand-year 
reign of Christ on earth that will occur after the second coming. The Bible uses the phrase a thousand years five times in six verses in Revelation chapter 20. And notice one key component of the millennium. John says, I saw the angel coming down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. During this time of Christ's reign on earth, Satan will be bound. And that will have a great effect on the earth. It will involve a partial renovation and a lifting of the curse against the world. Isaiah 65 describes that time and says, during that time of the kingdom, no infant will die. There'll be no such thing as infant death for a baby that's born. He says, if anybody doesn't make it to age 100, he will be thought to be a curse. So there'll be a longevity of life. Now, I'm thinking person would say, well, wait a minute. You mean there's going to be birth and death in the millennium? I thought in heaven nobody is born and nobody dies. We're all in these bodies that don't procreate. Well, that's in heaven, but this is on earth. And this is a partial renovation of the earth. Who is it that is going to be born and who is it that's going to die if only Christians enter into the millennium? Remember, there will be people, all the saved people in the world will be raptured uh, at the rapture, but some people will be saved during the tribulation, though they'll suffer to do so. Some will be executed, but some people will survive the tribulation and are believers, and they will be welcomed into the millennium, but they will be in their natural bodies. You and I, since we were receiving our new bodies at the rapture, we'll enter the millennium in our resurrected bodies. We don't reproduce, but those Christians who are in their natural bodies will reproduce. They will have children. They will live a long time, but they will die as well. But most importantly, they will have to make a choice. Those children of the tribulation saints will have to make a choice of whether they're going to serve Christ or not. And that is why the Bible says in Revelation 23 that after the millennium, Satan must be released for a short time. Why does Satan have to be released in order to give those born during the millennium an opportunity to make a choice? Everybody has to choose whether they're going to serve God and his kingdom or the devil and his kingdom. And amazingly, People who have lived under the benefits of the reign of Jesus Christ, some will choose in the end to follow after Satan. And that's when God calls an end to humanity, the world as we know it. Revelation 20.10 says, after that short-term rebellion, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where he and the false beast and the false prophet are also. They were cast there a thousand years before the, this, at the beginning of the millennium, but they still exist, and they are being tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. And now that they are done with, it's time for the final judgment, the great white throne judgment of all unbelievers who have ever lived. The Bible says, Hades, the temporary dwelling place of the unsaved, was emptied and everyone stood before the great white throne judgment. And the Bible says, and every person was judged by his works. Now, people wonder about that. They think, well, I thought our works don't matter to God. Well, think about it. 
Somebody who is unsaved is somebody who has said, I don't need God's forgiveness. I don't need God's grace. I'm good enough to get into heaven. I'm better than these Hamas terrorists. I don't behead babies. Surely God's going to welcome me into his kingdom. I'll just take my chances and let God judge me by my works. And so God says, okay, if you want to be uh, judged by your works, we will judge you by your deeds. Revelation 23, every one of them was judged according to his deeds. But as God examines the deeds, there may be some wonderful things you have done, but it's not enough. For you see, the standard by which God judges our deeds is not other people. It's by his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in comparison to Christ, nobody measures up. The Bible says in Romans 3, there is not one righteous among us, no, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says, if any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 15, not to be destroyed, but to suffer, to be persecuted like Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, day and night, forever and ever. That is incomprehensible when you think about it. The worst excruciating pain you've ever had, think about it. At least there was some relief. It might have come in an hour, a day, a week, or a month, but there's been some relief. Think about the worst pain you have ever felt and think about experiencing that day and night forever and ever. The awful truth about hell, hell ladies and gentlemen, is this. When we have spent three billion trillion years in hell, we will not have reduced by one second the time we have left to spend there. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. And once that happens, the present heaven and earth will be destroyed, as 2 Peter 3 tells us. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And that leads us into the final event in the end times. We call it eternity future. Eternity future is the permanent, underline that, state of both believers inhabiting the new heaven and of unbelievers inhabiting the lake of fire. The key is, once your eternal destination is fixed, there is no changing of it. And then after the present heaven and earth were destroyed, John saw something else in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. We've talked about this before. People think heaven is up there someplace. We're going to be floating around on a cloud, plucking a harp, and that's eternity. Does that appeal to you? It certainly doesn't appeal to me. Being around up there, floating around, that's not what John saw. He saw a new heaven, but a new earth. When we spend eternity in our new bodies, we're going to be on this earth the way God intended it to be. 
just like Adam and Eve experienced before the fall. That is the place we're going to be. There is going to be a city, a large city, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven to the earth. But it's coming to the earth. We don't go up to the new Jerusalem floating around up there. What are we going to do for all eternity if we're not plucking a harp? Well, we're going to worship God. We're going to experience worship like we've never had it before. We're going to work. Work? That sounds like hell to me. Work? What do you mean? I thought I was through with all of that. We were created in God's image to be workers. The only reason we don't enjoy work right now is because of the restraints of working in this world. But tired bodies, strained relationships, unfair treatment, none of that will be present in the new heaven and new earth. We'll enjoy work and accomplishment like God intended. We'll have new bodies. The words cancer, stroke, dementia, those won't be in the dictionary of heaven. We never get sick. Nor will we ever have to experience alienation from loved ones, broken relationships, divorce, or standing over the grave of a loved one saying goodbye. None of that will be a part of the new heaven and new earth. Instead, John said in Revelation 21:4, on that day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things will have passed away. That is the forever future of those who know Christ as Savior. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. If any man's name, any woman's name was not found written in the book of life, they were cast into the lake of fire. Do you know with absolute certainty your name is written in that book? It's the only way you can escape the worst horror you could possibly imagine and experience the greatest happiness you could ever imagine. If you're not sure, today's the day for you to make sure. Whether you're here in our worship center or you, you're watching this telecast right now, I want to give you an opportunity to know your sins have been forgiven and that you'll be welcomed into God's presence one day. If today you would like to acknowledge your sin to God and place your trust in Jesus, I invite you to pray this prayer in your heart as I prayed out loud, knowing that God is listening to you. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, to take the punishment I deserve to take. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to spend the rest of my life serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. 
For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.